This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Craig. And Andrew. And we're here before a special Hellboys bonus episode for you about not Dante's Inferno, but a Dante's Inferno. Another perhaps better book called Inferno. (laughs) Sure. Um, Just to say that we know there are a lot of folks out there uh, fighting the good fight this past week to honor folks. Last couple weeks, really. Yeah, last couple couple weeks at this point. Jeez. Last um, time. Yeah, in support of Black Lives and fighting against uh, state violence. Um, so we thank you all for folks who are able to be out there and doing that. And we also just wanted to share uh, some resources for folks who want to like make a difference uh, monetarily because they are able to do so and maybe aren't able to go out into the streets. Andrew, what have we done already? So we uh, this week donated $300 from our war chest to the Marshall Project, which is a uh, nonprofit uh, journalism outlet that's, uh, that talks about, uh, let, let me just quote their page, they seek to create and sustain a sense of national urgency about the U.S. criminal justice system. Uh, they achieve this through award-winning journalism, partnerships with other news outlets and public forums. In all of our work, we strive to educate and enlarge the audience of people who care about the state of criminal justice. That describes us, I would say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we are happy to support them and their work. Yes. Uh, we are also going to give a shout out to, there's a GoFundMe for Uncle Hugo's Science Fiction Bookstore uh, in Minneapolis. Um, and so a listener emailed us yes. about this, right? Yeah. Buchanan wrote in, uh, Uncle Hugo's pretty much destroyed. Um, and they are the oldest, you know, independent sci-fi bookstore in America. Um, lots of like rare and first edition stuff. So they put up a GoFundMe recently. Uh, it is verified and th- that those funds are going to restoring the store and, you know, figuring out what they're going to do next. Um, that seems like a, a good cause to honor reading in uh, one of the cities that kicked this off um, and where folks have been fighting very, very hard. Uh, so we want to honor that. We'll put a link to that in the show notes and tweet it out later this week uh, if you're able to support Uncle Hugo's. And in general, we just urge you to go support uh, not, you know, we always like it when you support local bookstores and stuff like that. But uh, maybe find some black owned bookstores that you can support um, and spread the word about them to make sure that folks are, are getting paid uh, yep. to do the work. There's no good pivot here, Andrew. So I'll just say we did we all we did this goofy inferno episode, <laughs> and I hope that folks can enjoy it and use it to get enraged about Dan Brown. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not it's healthy to be mad about multiple different things throughout the course of the week. I found yes, I so would. If you're just mad at the same thing 100 percent of the time, you might burn yourself out. Yeah, yeah. So uh, get mad at Dan Brown with us. As we journey down, down, down through the many pages of Inferno. And we'll see you next week. Podcast, I'm going to podcast about the overdue podcast. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read.
Indeed. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. And this is like sort of, it's Hellboys for the Hellboys folks, and it's a regular episode for everyone else. Suckers. We're talking Suckers. about Dan Brown's Inferno. We've trapped you in the fire and the flames. <laughs> uh, we are, Andrew, this is your idea. We we knew we were sure reading was. Dante. I don't, I don't know why we need to. Do bring that into it. I just want you <laughs> I to. I thought you might want to brag about like how cool of an idea it was. And oh, how, it was like, a really good idea because you know because let me share with you my thought process is we read uh, Dante's Inferno and this book's name also is Inferno. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's that's really where you stopped, huh? Yeah, okay. so that was that's you know just give give people a peek behind the curtain into the creative process on overdue when we make these kinds of decisions. And we knew we could not I we couldn't interview Dante, which was our dream. We tried. <laughs> he's hard to get, you know. He's just he's very busy he's and dead. Ve- he's very busy <laughs> and exiled and dead and we couldn't get him. So we figured we would go to the next best thing. <laughs> Stan Brown, (laughs) Uh, an author we have not covered in some 400 episodes, Andrew. Episode four was when we did the Da Vinci Code. And Uh so, all right, for everybody who's going to go back, who decides, oh, this episode was great. I'm going to go back and listen to the Da Vinci Code episode. I love that people people have already decided this episode is great. (laughs) Yeah, no, they've decided it's great. It's hilarious. Great, great, great. They're going to go back and listen to episode four of our podcast. I don't know if I would recommend it. I knew people were going to, so we still had the source audio around. I did re-edit it. Sure. I cut two minutes of something out. Maybe, I think, just awkward pauses and stuff. Yeah. Compared to the episode that had been up on the site before. And I edited out, I edited out a lot of, like, mic bumping and <laughs> all kinds of cool, like, amateur podcast stuff. <laughs> it does still sound like it was recorded on $20 rock band microphones, which yes, it was. Yes, it does. I was still but... in a basement <laughs> in my first apartment outside of my mom's house. Uh, and what else? about that show i went i listened to it today i think you can hear elements of the types of conversations we aspire to now yes um they're still there we still ask each other the same questions we still make each other laugh at the same dumb things uh but i think we're a little bit you know it's 400 episodes we're a little more well versed in just what books do yeah Uh, we're better we're better at talking about it and we are also i I think we have the tone down a little bit better because we didn't know we didn't know how serious to be. So, and also, I think now that we've we've been more established, like I'd spend a lot of time making a lot of snap judgments about people who read Dan Brown books <laughs> and just like the kind of the kind of hearts they have. Well, you said that same thing six years ago or whatever it was. I know. Um, so that episode. But, but I think now people would would maybe assume good intent of us because we have a track record. I hope now. so. I, we, you and I have talked about this a lot, and I feel like Fifty Shades was a watershed episode. I like think a, a, a I big moment for us. Yeah, I trying to get in the head of the audience, like the intended audience. Yes, as well as our own heads. I think we really hit our stride in the '30s, which is somewhere I think somewhere in there was when we started doing some more author stuff. So this book is pre-author information. It is pre either of us being married. You borrowed Da Vinci Code from your girlfriend. <laughs> um, and Her it was baby's ten months old now. I right? know, oh my cool. god! It was also I don't. 
Yeah, wow. Um, it was also our first episode that we recorded after the show had come out and people yeah, were right. listening to it, which is a mm-hmm. wild thing to think about. And we do talk about like getting a response from listeners, and I'm just I'm I want to know who they were. Our, I'm glad that all of our friends and relatives humored us so so yeah, well in so those funny. early episodes. Um, anyway, so we're going to talk about Dan Brown's uh, book Inferno. We will probably do some comparisons to Da Vinci Code just because it's shared language, and obviously it's yeah. the same character and stuff like that. Um, but my and, experience is not of having read that book recently. It's of having listened yes. to a six-year-old recording of me talking about <laughs> having read the book. Sure. So. Uh, and we did also, we read Dante's Divine Comedy, which, surprise, surprise, factors into this book, but really not as much as I thought it would. <laughs> oh, really? Because I was going to say it factors in kind of a lot. Like, it, it uh... is, it is, I would say in terms of, like volume like if you took all the pages that have divine comedy stuff out and stack them up they would not look like a lot but in terms of plot driving and like motivation it's in there pretty good okay i have a specific qualm with how the divine comedy is employed in this book then i have a very specific complaint about how robert langdon chooses to interpret the message of the divine comedy okay, which cool, we can talk great. about at some point <laughs> let me talk about real quick dan gerhard brown who was yeah, no wait, 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 wait. I, have a, I, have a, I have a setup for this I have a, wait hold on <laughs> last time last time we talked about the da vinci code but you know what we didn't talk about what the dan vinci code <laughs> That's a good one. You saved that one for 400 episodes. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Dan Vinci Code Gerhard Brown was born in 1964 in New Hampshire. He went to the Philip Exeter Academy where his dad was a teacher. That's the that's the school from a separate piece, our favorite book, Andrew. Oh, yeah, um, that was a good one with the broken leg. Is it a good one? I don't know. Yeah, um, it's great. He attended Amherst. Uh, I did not know that he had a a, a fledgling singer-songwriter career in the 80s and 90s. Did he really? I mean, he do- if you look at his picture on Wikipedia, he does have like guy who would whip out an acoustic guitar at a party energy. But <laughs> yeah, he made some like children's music. Uh, his first cassette was entitled Synth Animals. Hmm. Uh, one word. Um, he formed his own record company called Dalliance, uh, and this is notable These for are words. I know. <laughs> it, in 1994, he released an album called Angels and Demons, Andrew, which is also the title of the first Robert Langdon novel. I believe he even used the same word art uh, created by a guy whose last name is Langdon. I think his first name is John. Um, yeah, okay, I just had to scroll while I said John. Um, John Langdon is a professor of typography uh, who made the, the cover art. Where if I've never, I've actually never seen this before. I did the research. If you look at the cover art for Angels and Demons and you flip it upside down, it says Angels and Demons. Like the word art is Whoa, like real nice. tricky. It's called an ambigram. Just like how Sonic upside down is dinos. Sort of, yeah. It's sort of like the same thing where you turn upside down as a different word. Well, this one's you turn upside down as the same word. Cool, cool, cool. It's definitely the same. Um, he met his wife, Blythe Newton. They they got married, moved back to New Hampshire. He began teaching and then retired from teaching in 1996. So he could write a bunch of books. 
Um, he and Newton wrote a book called 187 Men to Avoid, a survival guide for the romantically frustrated woman uh, under that the... Sounds, so is it types of men or is it individual men that, it's, that it's they probably, had bad experiences? It's probably it's like, both. Like Gary from accounting? Don't. Just don't. Stay far <laughs> away. It's probably Gary, the guy who always blank. He's number 182 or something. I don't know. He wrote it under the under the name Danielle Brown. It was a humorous book from the mm-hmm. 90s, like you do. Yeah, Dave um, Barry. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, very Dave Barry, it sounds like, yes. We should read some Dave Barry for the show. Uh, okay. okay. Okay, sure. Um, no, let's do that. Yes. When do you want to pencil it in now? Just get the schedule figured out? I'll stop the podcast right now and start reading Dave Barry sure, to you. August can be August can be the month Dave of Barry month. <laughs> Um, and uh, in 1998, his first novel, Digital Fortress, followed up by Angels. <laughs> it's one hell of a title, right? Uh-huh. Uh, Angels and Demons in 2000, which is the first Langdon novel. Deception Point, 2001. Da Vinci Code, the big one, in 2003. Followed by The Lost Symbol, Inferno, 2013. Origin, 2017. Is that one a prequel? I, I no. think that it's not. I think they go in order. Huh. Um, and I do have a little bit of a rundown on them. I do want to give a shout out quick to the several plagiarism and copyright infringement suits that were unsuccessfully brought against the Da Vinci Code. Uh, I couldn't find any about Inferno because I don't think Dante is suing him. Um, but a number of people, if you if folks have listened to our episode, episode four, go check it out, or read the Da Vinci Code, they are familiar with the fact that it's about mary magdalene and jesus like got down and like had a baby or whatever and then people are descended from that baby and then a lady's grandpa was in a sex cult um and it's a scandalous book i guess but it's also based on scandalous information and maybe dan brown based it on some other books that had been written no one has successfully beaten dan brown in court (laughs) um he's too good Two people. He brings his guitar and he wows the judge every time. Yes, two people, Bajent and Lee, I think are their last names, um, wrote some books about some of these ideas, and he actually named one of the characters Lee Teabing, and Teabing is an anagram of Bajent, so he clearly knew about them and what they had written before. Mm-hmm. But I guess the judge was like, I mean, anybody can write about Jesus, am I right? Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah, so Langdon, Brown's own. I don't think it comes up too much in this in this book. It's more of a thing in Da Vinci Code. Um, but Brown's taking some flack for being perceived to be anti-Christian. I guess. Yeah, he has. He has. Um, he does. I mean, he he said there's a 2009 interview where he says, like at one point, quote, "A light went off, and I said the Bible doesn't make sense. Science makes much more sense to me, and I just gravitated away from religion." Okay. So he's, I think Langdon is is kind of a skeptic in that that rubs people the wrong way. I think some of the other books deal more explicitly with like science and religion coexisting than yes. the ones we've read do. But let me you know. let me do a quick rundown of what the other books are, so we can put Langdon himself in context. When we came to the Da Vinci Code, it was like here's a book that we have, and we're just going to talk about it. Um, Langdon is part of these series of books where there is this. Dan Brown alter ego. I think in interviews he has said like he's like the guy I wish I could be who's like a hot nerd. Um, Harrison Ford and Harris Tweed is what he's called in Da Vinci Code. 
Which, when I realized that that Dan Brown wrote music, I was like, that's a song lyric, dude. Harrison Ford and Harris Tweed is a song lyric that you've been sitting on and you couldn't <laughs> figure out what to do with, so you put it in a because book. Because it's not really a song lyric. Like, it seems like it's something, but it's not yes. anything. Yes, exactly. Um, the man wears a prized Mickey Mouse watch. He is claustrophobic. He has a photographic memory. Those are the three things you need to know about Robert Langdon. Uh, in the first book... Uh, Angels and Demons, a physicist got murdered at CERN and the Illuminati was involved and there, there was stolen antimatter. Uh, in the Da Vinci Code, a guy got murdered at the Louvre, the Priory of Sion, wanted to spread the truth about Jesus or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the lost symbol is sort of his national treasure. Uh, there's an adventure in D.C. with Freemasons and architecture. Uh, then we'll talk about this book. And then book five, Origin... A former student of his runs a computer simulation or something that recreates the origin of life. And the the question is whether or not they're going to share that with the world and like prove that all religion is bogus because he made life in a computer. And it proves that science happens. Um, that's that book. So, yeah, he is he is what I don't really get know is how those other books deal with symbology the same way that this book does and in ways that frustrated me intensely uh i imagine they would all (laughs) frustrate me intensely (laughs) symbology like that was definitely more of a thing in the vinci code and in this book they actually poke fun at it a tiny little bit where he sees a sign about like no smoking in the bathroom or something and and the book is like even the most inexperienced symbologist would know what this means yeah there's a part (laughs) i think it does factor into something he realizes but he's on a gondola in venice at one point and he's like oh all the little wooden flags on gondolas stand for this and i was just like is he just like a a a a roman mars that i like less is that who robert langdon is (laughs) it's the thing about Robert Langdon and we will, we talked about this a lot in the Da Vinci code. We're going to talk about it this time too, is he has this vast like treasure trove of knowledge in his brain about like anything art or architecture related that he is constantly forgetting until he, (laughs) until the moment he sees something that reminds him of, You're right. He has has amazing recall, but his like systemic thinking is really bad. Like he can't. Yeah, because there there are multiple sequences in this where he's trying to chase down clues, and he's you know, Mister Police. They gave you all the clues, and he has been given all this all this stuff about um, what what's the one that's like the the Doge who cut the heads off the horses, the the treacherous Doge. Yeah. Um. Are we going to do Doge or Doge? Uh, it's it probably Doge. Doge. I don't know. I just, sure. I've the been... treacherous Doge. <laughs> it's, it's... And, it's, and it is all this stuff where he's like, wow, what could any of this mean? And then he like sees something or hears something without actually getting any new information. And then it's off to the races for like three pages while he tells us all the context yes. of this stuff, usually ending up in this like where he puts a point on it by giving us a reason why it's extremely obvious what the answer to this was now that he has remembered whatever it is yes. about the art or the architecture that he's been reminded about. I do want to I want us to make sure we get into the book soon so we can ground ourselves, but I want to express first that I love escape rooms. And 
I have only ever lost one escape room out of like the half dozen that I've ever done, and Cincinnati defeated me, and I still don't like it. But <laughs> what I don't like about this book is how much it feels almost like an escape room, except the puzzles aren't really puzzles. It's just Robert Langdon remembering stuff. <laughs> like uh-huh. it, it ex- even less than the Da Vinci Code. It feels like there are. It's not even things to solve. It's just we got to turn some pages until he realizes a thing he knew. And it uh-huh. doesn't it doesn't invite the reader into that process. That's the biggest issue for me. Is it like in a Christie mystery in um, Chris Christie mystery? <laughs> yeah, definitely. In a Chris Christie locked room mystery, um <laughs> there are there is time and there are characters that are in there to like pad out the narrative so that the book gets a little ahead of the reader and the reader has time to like start to piece things together. This does not happen because like it's all about secret images or historical references that the reader can never know until Langdon tells them about it in the first place. Um, that is what is as, as a quote unquote mystery. Uh, that is what I liked least about this book. I think there are some like bigger questions that this book is asking that I, I'm not happy to think about, but I think are like at least interesting uh, and way more interesting than the bad mystery that he made. Yeah. So like things to its credit is like Dan Brown, I think, travels and researches extensively to write about all these places where Robert Langdon goes. This this takes place primarily in uh, Italy. But then at the end, we go to Istanbul, not Constantinople. We're going to spoil this book um, a lot. So, yeah. 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 But that's it's fine. (laughs) Okay. I saw a review of this book that was like, I won't tell you where it is, but it's not Italy. And I was like, shut up. It's Istanbul. (laughs) Um, But he does. I mean, the so the places in like Venice and Italy where we did go and I did recognize what he was talking about. It's actually like pretty because you've been there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a pretty good, like functional description of what the stuff is like. There is a lot of actual facts about art and and buildings and stuff that is interwoven with this. It's just that, like it feels like it's trying to be a couple different books sometimes. Yeah. Can I tell you um, about the opening section called Fact real quick? Yes, please do. There's a page before the prologue that's just labeled Fact. All ne- all artwork, literature, science and historical references in this novel are real. The consortium is a private organization with offices in seven countries. Its name has been changed for consideration of security and privacy. Inferno is the underworld as described in Dante Alighieri's epic poem, The Divine Comedy, which portrays hell as an elaborately structured realm populated by entities known as shades, bodiless souls trapped between life and death. So just in case you were wondering if any of this stuff was real, it is. The book is real. I do got to say, I, I don't think you can say, well, I changed the name of the consortium, which is an organization that I accuse of making up <laughs> intelligence about WMDs in Iraq, but it is real. I just changed the name. Like, is that, is that allowed? I don't know if it's allowed. <laughs> uh, so, Andrew, I'm going to allow you to, we want to go through sequentially through this book, even if we pass over some stuff because the reveals that happen towards the end only make sense and we need to talk about them yes yeah so the structure of this book is like the first two-thirds are trying to tell you the book is one thing most of the last third is 
slowly telling you that it's been another thing this whole time. And then the last 10 pages just like throw their hands up in the air and do whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, like they just don't care. Yeah. So what is the setup of Inferno? What is the what is the like where does Robert Langdon start at the beginning of this book? Robert Langdon, our hero, wakes up in a hospital with no memory of how he got there or where he is. Sure. Sort of and sort he, of like the beginning of Dante's Inferno, right? Wakes up yeah, in a woods. Sure. Like, yeah, one day I was walking in a wood and then I was in hell. Yeah. Well <laughs> that's the line, right? Something like that. <laughs> um so yeah, he, he wakes up with no knowledge of where he is. There's like a doctor and a and a nurse there who are taking care of them, uh, taking care of him and telling him that he came in last like the night before with a head wound like a bullet wound yep. in his head <laughs> but only it was like just a skin wound it, it like grazed him yeah but and he was muttering stuff to himself but very uh, sorry the, the, he said very sorry he would say and and because he uh, had sustained this head wound he has like amnesia that's wiped out his short term memory and so he is astonished to learn that he is in Florence Italy not Harvard. And that, yeah, and that the last thing he remembers is like go start like going to a lecture or something like a few days before. Yes, um, but something happens in the intervening uh, period, and he just doesn't he doesn't have any memory anymore. So it's a big mystery. And then a woman with spiky hair, yes, bursts into the hospital, shoots the doctor that's been tending to him, kills other people. I think. And then he escapes with the other doctor, Doctor Sienna Brooks. Oh yes, she is a doctor. I'm sorry. Yes. That's that. Well, okay. there were there were I'm nurses. Canceled. No, no, no. I'm sorry. There were nurses in that scene, but Doctor Sienna Brooks is there also treating yes. him. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. Um, uh, let me just describe. Let me g- give you a section on this spiky-haired woman. Um, this is a little bit later in the book. Outside his window, hidden in the shadows of the Via Toragali, a powerfully built woman effortlessly unstraddled her BMW motorcycle and advanced with the intensity of a panther stalking its prey. Her gaze was sharp. Her close-cropped hair, styled into spikes, stood out against the upturned collar of her black rather leather riding suit. She checked her silenced weapon and stared up at the window where Robert Langdon's light had just gone out. He talks about this woman's hair for half the book it's the he, only yeah. thing he ever says about her. it's her it's like the she's the one with spiky hair and then there's another woman with silver hair and that's like the main thing that you get it's like i'm reading homer but bad like <laughs> um and l- another thing about dan brown is he's the he is really really good at pointing to a scene and being like there could be sexual tension here but yes. there isn't but there could be <laughs> like <laughs> Like there are a couple places where he suggests that between Robert Langdon and Dr. Sienna Brooks, there could be some kind of heat, but does nothing like absolutely nothing to follow through on that at all. I have actually a terrible passage about that. Um, So Sienna Brooks gets him away from the hospital. Eventually, the spiky haired woman pursues them as well as some cops or secret police. It's unclear who they are. Langdon doesn't know. Guys in black cars. Yes. Um and he's in Brooks's apartment. He's like learning that, you know, she as a five year old was a child prodigy and played puck in a midsummer night's dream, which he's gonna talk about the rest of the book. It's like the only fact he can remember about her. Um 
And she says to herself, she knew it was probably just the adrenaline, but she found herself strangely attracted to the American professor. In addition to his being handsome, he seemed to possess a sincerely good heart. In some distant alternate life, Robert Langdon might even be someone she could be with. He would never want me, she thought. I'm damaged. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Dan Brown. Cool. Yeah. While and then he, like... (laughs) And man, okay, I don't want to jump ahead. No, it's okay. While he's in her apartment, he checks his Harvard email without telling her that he's using her laptop. Big, you don't do that. When you go to, when you stay at someone's house, you don't just use their computer without asking, even if it's innocuous. It's rude. Boy, I got banned from a lot of, a lot of friends' computers as a teenager. For what? You don't want to touch somebody's computer without permission. That's true. Um, they call the U.S. consulate, and they're like, we are after Robert Langdon. Where is he? And he's like, oh, crap, my own government's out to get me. What did I do? Uh, that's the, the, he. So that's not exactly how it goes. He calls them, and they say, okay, stay where you are. We're oh, sending okay. people. And then the folks who show up like are the guys in black cars. Oh, okay. And he, and he like, says, oh, oh, oh they're oh, out dang. to get me. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Well, she tells him, oh, no, your own government's out to get you. This is very specific. I'm glad that you remember that. Okay, that's yes, important. No, that's yeah. What does I, he... I read the, the last like third of this or so today, so maybe <laughs> I'm a little fresher on the cool twists and turns. Oh my God, what does he discover in his jacket, Andrew? This is important. So he discovers this like biohazard cylinder. Yeah, sure, like you do. And he's like, "Wow, why am I carrying around a biohazard cylinder?" Why does it have a fingerprint reader on it? Why is my fingerprint the one that opens it? Oh, weird. There's like this weird bone thing in here. That's like bone, but there's something rattling around in it. <laughs> and then you shake it, and then it turns into like a laser pointer projector. Like thing. a Pico projector, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that projects a modified work of art yes. onto the wall. It is Botticelli's Map of Hell, which is a rendering of Dante's Inferno. Yeah, so this is our first major Inferno plot point. Yes. Except for, I mean, unless you want to count, like, being in Florence, I guess. Being in Florence, and there's, like, an opening passage by a speaker that is not identified that's, like, making some Dante references, and he's a shade and bad stuff. But up until this point, nothing that Langdon's doing has been specifically Dante-related. He's been having weird visions of a woman with silver hair... I think He's telling him like seek and seek and you shall find seek and you shall find, uh, and he sees this painting projected on the wall, and he instantly knows it's wrong. It's not right. And this is the <laughs> at this point in my notes, I wrote this is not symbology. This is highlights for children because <laughs> <laughs> it's just it is literally just like spot the differences between these two pictures. I can't remember. And figure out the puzzle. I can't remember if this is when the book starts intercutting with like a flashback to a big fancy lecture he gave on this painting. There are a few spots in, in, in yeah because that is how the that is how Brown gives us. Uh, Langdon's Dante bona fides. Like he he was at some fancy. He was in Italy before one time and gave this big fancy lecture 
about this Botticelli painting. So he does know it well, like some, the back of his Sometimes hand. at Harvard he gives lectures on Dante and like art inspired by sure, Dante. Sure, I guess. Maybe. I mean, his lectures are so engrossing that you just you remember what they're about, but not where they are, you know? That's true. You're right. Uh, and he realizes there's what, what there's like a word on it that's that's a bunch of letters. Yeah, so he spots a bunch of letters, and then they they're like vaguely jumbled up and not very much, and they end up spelling out circa trova, which is I forget if it's Italian or Latin for like seek and ye shall find, basically. Yes, he he realizes so this, this is the first the first place where he realizes these like visions that are the only thing he can recall from his like amnesia amnesia state. Uh huh. And yeah, and this art are like intersecting i think he finally figures it out when they are running through the boboli gardens or something Always running and he has he has seen the silver-haired woman in a van and she looks sick like a captive that's a descriptor that did a lot of work on me for the first two-thirds of this book as uh-huh, dan brown it's intended meant to. yeah yeah uh, give him you gotta hand it to him um you do not under any circumstances <laughs> got to hand it to him <laughs> Uh, and he is displaying the projector painting on a porta potty, and he realizes that it's Circa Trova. Uh, he also realizes that he has been saying he hasn't been saying very sorry. He's been saying a, a guy's name. He's been saying Vasari. Yes. Yeah. Or Vasari. Um, yeah. Who has a big fresco in Il Duomo? I think that's a place, right? Yeah, Where the Duomo is a place. Yeah. Um, there was a 2005 Washington Post article all about this hidden message in this fresco. Uh, uh-huh. The fresco is the Battle of Marciano, and Circa Trova is in it. It's a real thing. The fact page of this book did not lie, I guess. And it's called, the article is called The Real Da Vinci Code. <laughs> they, <laughs> I think Dan Brown actually, I think Langdon actually talks about this in the book. Um, there's some speculation that whatever this seek and you shall find hidden message is actually like a clue to a hidden Da Vinci painting. Um, and one of the guys who's been trying to do that research actually consulted on or like got quoted in the Da Vinci code. So Langdon's probably huh. flown over to flown over to Italy and like had cappuccino with him or something. Sure. Um, so it is in the book. And he's got to get to Il Duomo and like realize he's got to find out what he needs to seek and find because he does not know what to seek and find. He just knows he needs to get there. Mm -hmm. And so that goes on like this for a little bit. Like he is he is kind of remembering or being reminded of bits and pieces of this puzzle one at a time. I don't remember the exact sequence of, of events, but it's it's enough to say that. Uh, Sienna and Langdon are running, pursued by both this spiky-haired woman and these people in black cars. And do you, is this the time we want to bring up the provost? Uh, we do. I'll say the next because step, the, yes. Because the book is has been intercutting with scenes of him and his crime boat for a while now. <laughs> yes, I do. In my notes, actually, after we get to, we got to go get that fresco. Uh, I have quick break. There's a dude on a boat named the provost. Uh, so what's the provost and what's his one rule, Andrew? Man, so he's on a boat and he... <laughs> the Mendacium, it's called. The Mendacium, Jesus. 
Uh, let's let me just read a, a, a passage. Let, let Dan Brown speak for himself. He had been called many things, a soulless mercenary, a facilitator of sin, the devil's enabler. But he was none of these. The provost simply provided his clients with the opportunity to, pr- to pursue their ambitions and desires without consequence. That mankind was sinful in nature was not his problem. So, uh, uh, two golden rules, never make a promise you cannot keep and never lie to a client ever. Okay. And so the provost, as this book goes on, is simply astonished to learn that people would use his very specifically built organization to do crimes. <laughs> yes. He he does like at least admit that he has helped some elections get stolen. And I think as you alluded to earlier, was involved in maybe some planting man- yeah, WMDs man- in Iraq. Yeah, some manufactured yeah. evidence. Um, I like that like he did do that and a lot of people did die. <laughs> die, yes. But, but this is the real bad this thing. This is the this is the straw that broke the camel's back. And so a guy uh, the, the decisions of our past oh my God. are the architects of our present, thinks the provost to himself. Cra- man, the man loves whiskey too. That's a that's a trait I share with but him. But he doesn't like to he doesn't want to like it. No, that's true. He has some It's like lightly implied that maybe he has an alcohol problem. Yeah, but it's Dan, not You know how Dan Brown isn't know. really interested in character development. That's <laughs> just kind of there for you to think about <laughs> and then move on. Robert Langdon is yeah, a collection of facts dressed up in a <laughs> collection of fancy clothes that's his character uh sienna is that she's smart and also secretly bald those are her things because another she, hair because she another has, hair note yeah because she has um bean disease from ender's game like her brain is going to keep <laughs> oh, growing I thought you meant that like there is a there's something wrong with her bean no well there is something wrong with her bean um <laughs> it's like it makes her super smart but it's gonna like it's precancerous or something and she's gonna die like young um is There's, that okay? Sure. That it's something like that. Her brain is like developing in a way that it makes her super smart, but it's gonna hurt her. Um, and yeah, whatever. There, there's a woman later in the book, and her whole character note is that she's pregnant. Like that's it. That's and then there's you know. another the silver-haired woman. Her secondary trait. You know, everybody gets. You know, when you're it's, your making a D and D character, you have yeah. yeah, you have like a main proficiency, and then your secondary and. So her main one, silver hair, secondary one, infertile. Yeah, it's, oh God. <laughs> Which is just a filter that that influences her every thought. Like every time we're in her head, she's just like, well, well as somebody who's infertile, this is how I respond to this unrelated situation. Dan Brown wields every idea he has like a sledgehammer. Like he just <laughs> walks into a plot and is like, here's my ideas. Um, and so the okay the provost was hired by some guy called the client later in the book we will find out who he is we'll talk about that in a second Um, the client has asked him to deliver a safe deposit box to the silver-haired lady I really Mm -hmm. don't like the parts of this book where Robert Langdon attempts to be like a a film camera behind someone's back where you don't know Uh what they look like and he just calls Mm -hmm. them whatever like two word phrase he came up with for way too long like it well, could and, work and, for a page and, it doesn't work for two chapters and every every character thinks of the same words to describe the same people which is another place where a dan brown's dan brown is showing yep <laughs> <laughs> uh and so the the client has hired 
the provost to keep him safe for a year so he can work on something. Then at the end of that year to deliver a safety deposit box to this lady and also upload a iMovie video to the post, media. Post a video to YouTube. <laughs> Yeah, I, at one point, someone is like, he could have just posted this himself, but he trusted us. It's like, yeah, he, he could have put it on YouTube. He could have just scheduled it, yeah. It's weird. Those tools exist. Get a Tumblr guy. like. <laughs> <laughs> and and it is strongly implied through the spiky-haired woman um, that these people are also pursuing Robert Langdon. So we don't, we don't know why. Uh, Robert Langdon doesn't know why himself. Um, it leads to Dante's death mask in Il Duomo, which Dante realizes that he stole a night ago and put Langdon it in a Ziploc bag. You said you said Dante realizes, which oh, would be excuse- quite a twist. <laughs> oh man, no, Robert Langdon man, realizes. I, ugh, I'm just I was closing a tab with my oh with my notes, and I just got to another provost bit. Hit Working me, within me. a moral gray area was commonplace at the consortium an organization whose lone ethical high ground was that they would do whatever it took to keep a promise to a client. Is that what an ethical high ground is? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. It's, well, when it's your only one, yeah, you can refer to it as such, I suppose. We follow through. No questions asked. No matter what. And the, there is a man on that boat whose job it is to upload this this like movie maker clip, and it shakes him to his core because it's like a video... That's got some plague doctor mask talking to him about the end of the world. And then the camera goes underwater to a plaque that's like a date that's coming up. Yeah, it's like this this is discussed over and over again is like the date on the the, the plaque says like it's like two days from now or something. Yeah, like some this is your salvation or whatever. And it happened on this day and the day is tomorrow. It's always tomorrow. And it and it sort of feels like he's like watching the ring like he's really spooked by it. And he's like, I don't know if we should do it. And the provost is like, we keep our promises. Um, but of course they don't, because otherwise the book couldn't happen. Yeah, right? See, you give the consortium this one golden rule, and then they keep... Because the first part of the story only works if they do have that rule, and then the second part of the story only works if they happen to Even though no consortium time. would have that rule. No boat called the Mendacity... Which, as Robert Langdon, you know, tells us later, is like related to the Greek god of deception. They would the never men, mendacium. the mendacium, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they would never only keep promises. They're all about lies. I'm still like, yeah, starting a war in the Middle East is fine. Yeah, it's but really bad. <laughs> boy, I think I better take this this one to my this creepy pasta youtube video i better take this up to the provost this seems a little off to me anyway we've been derailed before we but again before we have gotten to the big reveal we meet dr ferris who's like a paul giamatti-esque character walking around (laughs) with a big bruise on his chest which gives us like oh we know that there's a plague is he sick what's his yeah like he's got this rash he keeps scratching at and and we get like a very limited look inside his head, but nothing about his motivations or yes, I I don't know anything that would ruin the twist. Basically, <laughs> they take a train to Florence, and here's where we learn the most about our big bad guy, Andrew. Train like, to Venice, isn't it? Oh, Venice. Excuse me. We leave yeah. Florence, go to Venice. Um, do you want to tell me about Bertrand Zobrist? And this is what um, Sienna Brooks tells Robert Langdon. 
and then I have a comment on like one thing that Brown does in this section. But tell me about the Zobrist like backstory. So I he guess. he's like this this genius geneticist guy. Basically, he was a he was a muckety muck at the WHO, um, the World Health Organization. For yep. those of you playing along at home. And he came up with this, like, he is an adherent of this theory that uh, the human population has been increasing sort of on an exponential curve. And while in the olden days, and this is this is kind of rough to talk about right now. In it's the olden very days, rough to talk about. Yeah. Periodically, you'd have like the Black Death come and like thin out the herd a little bit. And then once... Uh, like there, there is the the comparison they make is like the Black Death ravaged Europe, and then after that, the relative abundance of resources was something that helped spark the Renaissance. I had so to put the book it. down when I read that paragraph. <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't expect. Okay, we I didn't know anything about this book coming in, other than that it would be sort of focused on Dante. And I think the part where it becomes about a plague that's supposed to like quote unquote save humanity is where I was like, this isn't about Dante's Inferno anymore. Like they have they have done a reading of going through the bad part to get to heaven as like a metaphor for going through this plague to get to salvation and that is for me where the where any sort of relationship to dante breaks down sure and then like some of the from there it's more superficial like it's all the the clues that are leading langdon all around yes, europe are because yes. zobris like loves inferno, Dante's inferno yeah, yeah they're like inferno derived but they're not yeah i can see what you mean when you when you'd say this for a book called Inferno, this does not have as much to do with yeah, Dante's like, work as it could. I guess I guess I came in with too strong a reference point of the Da Vinci Code, which is like uh, Leonardo da Vinci had some dirt on Jesus, and like we're gonna dive <laughs> deep into the Jesus mythos, right? And this is like, hey, Dante wrote a cool poem, and this Thanos like devotee. Uh, has decided to invest all of his effort into like referencing it. It's not like Dante wrote some stuff that actually was about this other thing that was actually about this. Um, that's where I expected the book to be, and it was certainly not that. So that, that's my own frustration um, with this nonsense, I guess. <laughs> uh, I got there was a passage earlier that frustrated me that I again I keep just like. I, <laughs> have highlights and i need to get them in somewhere yeah hit me um sienna is a doctor as we've established yes, yes and langdon has no reason to doubt that she's a doctor and yet he spends several paragraphs describing to her what a plague mask is that that was weird she knows what a plague mask is my dude like i am i am 100 100 sure this came up in her study of the history of medicine yeah, that she went that through to become a doctor. Bad. Even if you don't just pick it up through pop culture. Bad damn like brown. I, I understand what a plague mask is. Anyway, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I will stop. Before we Very get... sorry. <laughs> Before we get to the big reveal, there's one like little tricky thing that Dan Brown does. We get like this chapter that is written all in italics and it is someone talking in the first person, which does not often happen in this book, uh, about their first encounter with Bertrand Zobrist. 
Wait, I thought that the uh, the chapter was in English. <sighs> yeah, I misspoke. Sorry, Mamma Mia. <laughs> God, it's a spicy chapter, and because it is a spicy chapter, because it is spicy, yeah. uh, the provost has uh, mused that FS twenty eighty, which is later revealed to be part of this transhumanist naming convention thing, uh, is whoever hooked him up with Zobrist, and so we get a chapter from FS twenty eighty's perspective. We know that this person is on the train with Robert Langdon. But the way the book is structured, it's really making you think that it is Dr. Ferris, who we just met. Yeah, yeah. And it is, it's super, super careful to, and in, in retrospect, once you get to the twist, you're like, oh yeah, he yeah. didn't, he, there were a bunch of places where he obviously very purposefully did not like give you the same names for the same characters in like different, yes. you know, first it's person. It's almost like it's symbology. Yeah, right. But, um, yeah, you're led to believe it's Ferris because he's acting weird and you don't think he's being straight with them and he's the character you know the least about. Yes, and it's later revealed that he is he is still in connection to the provost somehow. So, like, he does have some behavior that puts him in contact with him, which makes him suspicious. Anyway, you get this chapter where, like, someone went to this, like, presentation that Zobrist was giving on this issue and only six people showed up because it's kind of wacky and they like had sex and then this person like fell in love with Zobrist and then watched Zobrist uh, take his own life by jumping off a bridge. Uh, And there's this whole bit of the creepy ring video where uh, he talks about his love or or whatever, doing this for his love. So that's Dan Brown like loading that particular issue so that he can like deploy it later uh and this is some i thought it was one of the more effective bits of misdirection in the book uh, that that is a book less about solving puzzles and more about just obscuring the reality from the reader and robert langdon at the same time yeah i mean it gave me i did i didn't love how it like leaned on like gay villain. That's trope a good point. That's a good to lead yeah, you, right, the reader, right. to believe that FS twenty eighty is is Ferris. Like yes, that that's true. That wasn't my fave. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you're other otherwise. I, you are I, right, yes. I, I I believe it was effective misdirection. I don't. I don't. Yeah. I don't want to pass judgment on it. As I like. Yeah, that's a cool character that he made because that's actually also not a character that he made. Um. So then, the, what's the reveal, Andrew? We go. We're in Venice. We're in Venice. We go to St. Mark's. We are like chasing around stuff and we're piecing together different bits. So Dante's death mask. They did we talk about how there's like ink on the back of it? We did that not they discover. No. So there's this uh, like House of Leavesy like spiral poem thing that is written in the style of um Dante's Inferno. They talk specifically about the Mandelbaum translation, which is not the one that we read for the show, but it's another well-known one that came out in the eighties, I think. Yeah. Um, it's written in the, in the style, but only like the first line or, or two of it are actually from the Inferno. And so it sets up all these clues, uh, where Langdon is chasing art around in the hopes of finding something. I'm not sure. I'm not hundred percent sure that we know what the thing being tracked is yet, except that Langdon, because he can't remember anything, is just trying to figure out what's going on. Like he's trying, he's looking for answers at this point. And, still. and Ferris has told him, 
hey, I'm with the World Health Organization. Bertrand Zobris has some sort of plague disaster. Yes, yeah, yeah sure, sure. We sure. need to follow these clues so that we can stop it, whatever it is. And that's basically where everyone's knowledge who's who's with Robert Langdon, that's where they stop. Like they don't he doesn't have any more information than that. Yeah. So we spend just like a ton of time talking about every feature of St. Mark's and every single work of art <laughs> contained within it for just pages and pages, which is it seemed accurate. Like I've seen most of those things. I I knew that the like the famous horse statues on the outside are not the originals. The originals are inside to protect them from the elements. Um but he puts together like with with by seeing the art and by getting some help from like he just knows every conservator at every like prominent museum that exists in the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is convenient. <laughs> but he figures out that he's he's looking for the tomb of the specific doge who cut off the heads of these horse statues and and lived for a long time and yes. Um and so while he's doing that, like he is just getting to the realization that they're not looking in the right place when uh, Ferris like falls to the ground and we, the reader, are led to believe that it is like we, we've been led to believe that he is diseased and we are led to believe that he has collapsed on account of this mystery disease that he's not been straight with anybody about. And so Sienna leads Langdon out, like just very quickly, not giving him a chance to really think or or to look into anything. And that that's around when stuff starts to twist, right? Yeah, like we 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 get a flash to the silver-haired woman's perspective again, who is who at this point we know is the director of the World Health Organization. Uh, Her first name escapes me. Her last name is Sinsky, Doctor Sinsky. Yeah, we'll just go with that. Um, and she has been in contact with Zobrist. Zobrist had talked to her about the overpopulation issue, about how he thought the WHO should do something about it. She rebuffed him. Um, and he basically, he like showed her a PowerPoint about Dante <laughs> and was like, listen, lady, <laughs> this is going to go bad. And she's like, you're scaring me. And he's like, I will scare you. And then... It seems like all of the events of the book were set in motion. Um, and the guards are still chasing them. They have tracked them to Venice. And the dudes grab Langdon and Brooks gets away. Um, yes. The the like the black van guys. Now, along the way, while we were back in, in Il Duomo, Brooks did kill the spiky-haired lady by tossing her off a rafter through a painting. Yeah. Um, which was very dramatic. That was this. That whole sequence was like, okay, you're writing a movie. I get it. That's it pretty, fine. Yeah, that was pretty effective. It was like, yeah, I've I've played this Assassin's Creed <laughs> sequence. Yes, I, think. I think so. You're right. Um, and then the twist starts to slowly twist for like twenty chapters of reveal of what is actually happening in this book. It's really you gotta like imagine every like villain in the in the spinny armchair twist that you've ever seen in any movie or tv show but like slowed way down like slowed down to 120th of its regular speed unbelievable the beginning Um, of it is what dr sinsky like that he wakes up on the mendacium he doesn't know he's on the mendacium he's just like oh i'm on a boat right what 
Sinsky. She's well, the, well, she's a sorry, I jumped to Lang- Langdon wakes up. He's been taken by the guards, and Sinsky's there. And Sinsky's like, what, hey, we're what on we've a boat. Gotten a, what we've gotten a glimpse of before through like a Sinsky POV chapter oh, is sure. that she was on this boat. Oh, yes. And we are led to believe. So we had been led to believe that the provost had her like captured and drugged in the back of one of these black cars. Correct. That's what we thought was happening. And it turns out like the, the provost and she meet up and they were they were at cross purposes before, but the provost has decided like, oh, it's time to break my my one rule, rule because that's the part of the book that it is. Uh-huh. Um, it was time for the consortium to break protocol and assess what kind of insanity the organization might have unwittingly supported over the past year. Unwittingly? Unwittingly. <laughs> you don't get <laughs> He was. Pre- you chose not to be witted about it. That's like, true. You, you, this, your whole organization is set up for you to unwittingly be party to giant crimes Speci- what are you talking yeah. about <laughs> specifically the provost was protecting zobrist from sinski um and that has broken down sinski got but because this like data entry guy was like whoa this video is creepy yes. and then showed it to the provost and the provost is like dang this is creepy <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then they break protocol that's true and they become lisinski and and the provost are now on the same side now, so that's that's what we know going into slightly this. like there is a step before that though where Sinsky recruited Langdon because she found the safe deposit box early and she wanted Langdon's help solving the clues and then yeah because she had found like the the bone projector the bone right? projector yes and, and she was like well this art we need a we need to bring an artist a symbologist in, in to look at this art and isn't he hot and look at this highlights for children puzzle to find the differences between the two images. And at this point, the consortium doesn't know what it is. They just know that they're messing up their plan. So they send in the spiky haired lady to kind of mess some things up. The spiky haired lady takes Langdon in too early before he's solved all the clues and he doesn't want to talk about it. And so she, she they give him an amnesia drug. So that he won't remember that he's working for the WHO and will only work spo- for them. Is it supposed to be like a benzo Yeah, thing? it's supposed like to it be a PTSD drug. In Arrested Development par- parlance, Langdon has given a forget-me-now. Yes, correct. Uh, and so everything from the beginning of the book has been a setup. The people in the vans chasing him are like troopers from the WHO, which I didn't know that they had a SWAT yeah, they're team. They're like C- CDC shock <laughs> troops. What are you talking about? Uh, Sinsky had vertigo, which is why she was all loopy in the back of a van. That makes sense, I guess. Um, and the consortium had orchestrated the whole hospital thing. Yeah, so they were trying to flip Langdon to get them to work. Yes. To get him to work for them. Correct. And the WHO people assumed that Langdon had Had been flipped flipped and was working for them because he was acting weird because he had amnesia. (laughs) And wow, isn't this a hilarious misunderstanding? Don't we all have egg on our face now? And meanwhile, Sienna Brooks is the wild card. Um, They did not trust her once they realized she was Zobrist's lover because she is FS2080, actually. Um, And she was working on this plague. Uh, Zobrist kept himself from her as well. It seems like she woke up to the fact that maybe what he was doing was not 
an amazing idea and maybe wanted to stop it. So the consortium brings her on board and then now she's off doing rogue stuff while the WHO. I I think you're mixing up what ends up happening with what happened. Like, so she had worked for the consortium for a couple of years. Yes. Like unrelated on something else. Sure, sure, sure. And then she later appeared and brought so Zobrist to the consortium. Correct. And the provost trusted that the deal was going to be fine, like that the Zobrist was fine to work with because um he trusted Sienna. Yes. So But oh, so what like I he, what I was saying though was that the provost didn't necessarily trust Brooks to be part of this Langdon operation initially. But because Sienna Brooks got herself involved because he knew that like this was weird. I don't think that she was supposed to be part of the plan. He says that at one point, that she was not I supposed guess. to be part of this whole ruse where he is like, oh, the reason that Dr. Ferris is scratching is because he was the doctor who got shot and there was a squib on his chest. And, and he's having like an allergic reaction to, to it. Yeah. Fight makeup or some nonsense. And all the people shooting at you were never actually shooting at you. Which is just they a were just real... Try, they were just trying to ask you some questions about what was going on, but with bullets. So stupid. <laughs> um, they, they make Langdon watch the video, and he's like, yeah, this sucks, doesn't it? Oh, wait, I solved it. We got to go to Istanbul. Yeah, so so what is what they've realized is that there is this like yellowish-brownish bag that's been suspended in the air. And they determine that this is a... like It's water-soluble plastic... Yes, and there are a lot of different kinds of this plastic. Um, you you can buy different kinds based on how long you want it to in water, take, yeah, to, to take, dissolve. Yeah. And what a Zobrist has has done is he is like put it in a bag that's set to dissolve at this specific time, and then he's like filmed this video, and he's set it all up so that this virus bag will burst, whether he is there to set it off or not. Correct. And he has taken his own life, so at this point, that's just going to happen. And they're, I think they're like, we're going to get there before we we got to try and stop it, um, which, of course, does yeah. not happen. So Langdon and um, Silverhair and their adversary-turned-pal, Agent Bruder. Agent Bruder. <laughs> all head to Istanbul, not Constantinople, because they realized they were looking in the wrong place. Um, they need to go to the tomb of this doge, which is in uh, Istanbul. Enrico and Dandolo. And they need to like f- listen to his tomb and then follow the sound of trickling water sure. to find where this virus bag is. Yeah, it's in this huge underground cistern where there's lots of water and air pockets. Sienna, Sienna also is, is going. Yes. And we, the reader, once again, it's we are led to believe... That she is working at cross purposes with Langdon and except, the CDC shock troops. Except now. I'd never like. Here's here's. I found several Quora.com pages that were like, "Is this a flaw in Dan Brown's Inferno?" And I would like to write one that's like, <laughs> "What the heck was Sienna Brooks gonna do?" Like, no part of this plan implied that he needed someone to go there and like puncture a Ziploc bag. For his plan to work so like mm-hmm. the the uh, the idea that she is opposed to langdon and bruder and the silver-haired lady like doesn't really ever make sense which i mean I, I i guess i read it as they all they all assume 
because of the date on the plaque and in the video, like because it's tomorrow, that they have another day before this bag is supposed to dissolve. Yes, that's true. That's true. And oh, maybe she's she, going to get it to safety. Quote well, unquote. no, she she is going to go and she's going to pop it early because she's worried that they're going to find it before okay. it has a chance to to go. Okay, like that that was that was I think what we're intended to think. Okay, I, that makes sense. It just, and I, I do agree with you that it is a weird turn for that character, but also she's been lying the whole time. This is, this is a macro concern, I guess, I have with Robert Langdon <laughs> and everybody in this entire universe, is that they all take everybody at their word always until they are double-crossed. Yeah, <laughs> like it yeah, is yeah, yeah. A, It is an innocent until you stab me in the back system and, that I don't think like given how many heists and like international incidents this man has been a part of you'd think he would yeah that's a like, good point you'd think he would ask for receipts a little bit more frequently than he does yeah well and and everybody is using like half truths all the time and because I, the best lie is as close to the truth as you can get it Craig which is what the provost says at one point yeah and so like i think that's what dan brown is sort of getting at with his whole his whole deal which is that like you take something that is real and then you add some sort of conspiratorial meaning to it and that's why we get interested in it and want to dig deeper and stuff like that but no langdon never wants to dig deeper into people he never really gets that far uh, I mean, people aren't as interesting as art or buildings, so... That's true. At one point, he also doesn't like, quote-unquote, uncontextualized ideas. Here's a great Dan Brown sentence. Be- <laughs> because his eidetic memory was better suited to images rather than uncontextualized ideas, Langdon's revelation had arrived in the form of a piece of artwork. Come on, Dan Brown! What are you... What? <laughs> This is what we talked. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Like Robert Langdon is selectively an idiot because he has to be for the plots to work. Because if he always remembered everything that he knew instantly, instead of needing like six iPhone reminders to go off to remind him about these like horse sculptures, I do appreciate the book. Would be the book would be a lot less interesting because I. Well, no, that's not right. The book would be a lot less long because. <laughs> Because there would be fewer steps in between starting a puzzle and finishing it. That's true. That's true. Um, so what is they, like the 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 bag and everything is like the the poem that's directing them refers to like the sunken place or the sunken palace or whatever and it like is. a chthonic monster and yeah and this and this like unused cistern in Istanbul that they end up in is literally called in Turkish like the sunken palace like come on and Langdon like knew that I guess in the back of his head but he didn't realize it until they had already done this whole goose chase yeah come on man so what is the final twist (laughs) what is the final twist and a half Andrew because I still have some complaints and I want to make sure we have time to get through them Okay, so they, they go down the cistern and they go down to, they find with more cool clues that only Langdon can decipher where the bag was and Agent Bruder wades out into the water to find the bag and there's just a little bit of like plastic left attached to like a chain Uh-oh. or something and he, and he knows the, ba- the bag is gone and the virus is probably out. So they start trying to 
lock down everything, but everybody panics and it goes south real quick. There's an orchestra um, playing upstairs. They're playing Dante's Inferno music. Uh-huh. Okay, sure. It's very thematically appropriate. And uh, uh, Langdon is kind of watching Bruder and helping him, but then he runs into Sienna who runs away. And so he gives chase and there's this very this much longer than it needs to be chase scene, which it doesn't still, make which any still manages sense. to it, and it still somehow manages to give us a lot of like information and context about like the farmers market in Istanbul, <laughs> which is fun in the middle of your chase scene. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, but the, he finally he doesn't even catch up with her. She gets away and then decides to come back because she's tired of running yeah she gets on a boat and then it's like nah she steals so she someone's and, boat and then is like nah no and then she and langdon have this heart to heart and what what comes to light craig it's so here's the thing they thought that they were going to try and stop this plague from releasing they realize like brooks lays this out to langdon while some other characters figure it out a different way that the virus has already gone worldwide. It's already out there. A dude in the CDC already has it. Yeah, like the date was, they thought it was going to be the date that the bag broke. And in reality, according to Zobrist's calculations, it would be the date that it became like endemic and yes. un, like unfixable. And they realize, well, they don't realize this. Brooks tells Langdon, it's not... Uh, like a bubonic plague it's not a plague that's just gonna kill people which again i was reading this book and that is what the book is leading you to believe and it was very uncomfortable to read for the last two weeks it was not great uh and there's a whole section where langdon is very concerned about how big the crowds are in venice and i was just losing my mind a little bit i was already worried about how big the crowds are i can't see people gathering a room on tv anymore without being like shouldn't you have masks on or something really and then she is like nah dude our brains are gonna be it's not a normal virus it's a children of men virus it is (laughs) it is a it is a thing that science can't create yet it is a virus that that selectively and perfectly rewrites your dna with no side effects uh so that roughly 30 percent of the world's population becomes infertile or sterile and over time, and it will be passed uh, genetically through the people who can have kids. So this ratio will hold forever. Or pro- you know, presumably, it would actually contract the population. Yeah. Um, but what the, what this does is it buys mankind enough time to like genetically and like technologically enhance themselves yes. until they don't die anymore. Yes. Basically. Correct. It's it is not the like the sole fix to the problem it is a way to buy time yeah because the the problem is going to happen sooner rather than later and langdon asks like well how do you how does the virus decide who gets to have kids and who doesn't and they kind of they hand wave it away i mean they do they do sienna's reason for not going to the authorities about it is like that actually does ring true which is why would I trust anybody in power with this information? Because governments make it their job to weaponize literally every scientific advancement yeah, that anybody she, has ever come up and with. And at that point, she's not even specifically talking about this, what this virus does, but just the technology of making such a perfect virus 
one that is able to edit DNA is not a well, thing the, that a, yeah. a global organization should have access to is a well, thing that then, she objects to. Talking about tweaking it so that it it does. Apparently, we're we're meant to believe that this version is just kind of a like a roll of the dice. Yes, rather than selective trying like, to yes, go yeah. for any like one trait or gene that exists in any one uh like like race or gene pool yeah that's but the like sienna is like well if you gave it to a government they would figure out a way to make it a genocide virus and yeah that 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 seems that's a mood yeah in your 2013 book and there's about where we are in 2020 there's a little bit of the like cyberpunk class stuff when when the book is ruminating on transhumanism and futurism and like who gets to have the benefits of technological advances and who doesn't is a thing that the book at least like mentions, even though it's mostly concerned about with which art Robert Langdon can identify quickly. Right. Yeah, like it, <laughs> it makes nods in the direction of talking about the wealth gap and then says, you know, what if in addition to the wealth gap these like these people were literally genetically superior yeah to yeah everybody else and what does that do to society so there is a little bit in the end of the book of a like well you gotta hand it to him it's an equitable virus and it sucks it really bites i just i have a long okay, okay. hit me hit All me right. hit this me. is from chapter like 102 or something <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Nope. It was Langdon who broke the silence. Not to sound old-fashioned, he began. This is a conversation between Langdon and Brooks and Sinsky. Yeah. Who have all kissed and made up. Yeah, Brooks is going to get immunity to like help the WHO understand the virus Cause she's, or Yeah, because she's the only one who knows this stuff because she like ate the letter that <laughs> Joe Briss <laughs> wrote did. about it. Um, it was Langdon who broke the silence. Not to sound old-fashioned, he began, but I was raised on theories of Darwin, and I can't help but question the wisdom of attempting to accelerate the natural process of evolution. Robert, Sienna said emphatically, genetic engineering is not an acceleration of the evolutionary process. It is the natural course of events. What you forget is that it was evolution that created Bertrand Zobrist. His superior intellect was the product of the very process Darwin described, an evolution over time. Bertrand's rare insight into genetics did not come as a flash of divine inspiration. It was the product of years of human intellectual progress. Langdon fell silent, apparently considering the notion. And as a Darwinist, she continued, you know that nature has always found a way to keep the human population in check. Plagues, famines, floods. But let me ask you this. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. Isn't it possible that nature found a different way this time? Instead of sending us horrific disasters and misery, maybe nature, through the process of evolution, created a scientist who invented a different method of decreasing our numbers over time. No plagues, no death, just a species more in tune with its environment. Sienna, Sinsky interrupted. It's late. We need to go. But before we do, I need to clarify one more thing. You've told me repeatedly tonight that Bertrand was not an evil man that he loved humankind and that he simply longed so deeply to save our species that he was able to rationalize taking such drastic measures. Sienna nodded. The ends justify the means, she said, quoting the notorious Florentine political theorist Machiavelli. So tell me, Sinsky said, do you believe that the ends justify the means? Do you believe that Bertrand's goal to save the world was so noble that it warranted his releasing this virus? A tense silence settled in the room. 
Sienna leaned in, close to the desk, her expression forceful. Dr. Sinsky, as I told you, I believe Bertrand's actions were reckless and extremely dangerous. If I could have stopped him, I would have done so in a heartbeat. I need you to believe me. Elizabeth Sinsky reached across the desk and gently grasped both of Sienna's hands in her own. I do believe you, Sienna. I believe every word you've told me. Not an answer to the question. Nope. Do the ends justify the means? But the book does come down on the side of the ends justifying the means, it doesn't it? It really does, huh? <laughs> it really... and mm. So I found a quote from uh, Mr. Brown in an NPR interview from 2013 on creating his villain. I love the gray area between right and wrong. Here is somebody who says, we have an enormous population problem on this planet and everybody's turning a blind eye and there are no simple solutions, but there is a solution. And while it's terrifying, maybe there's a silver lining to it. Maybe he's actually the good guy in all this. And I know he's being a bit of a provocateur and he is like, I I do think that there is value in gray area fiction and stuff like that. But the I just he is not the person with the skills that I want to explore these issues because well, it, it, it <laughs> it's just clunky and it doesn't he said back to back characters said ends justify the means out loud to each other. Like, come on, dude. As with the sort of horrifying the Black Death is directly responsible for the Renaissance thing that he did earlier. Yeah. There is a passage where they say well, uh, a man who saws off a three-year-old's leg is bad. Oh, psych. Actually, he was a doctor and the leg was gangrenous. Ends justify the means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, that's the comparison. Is like, oh, well, actually, this guy who you thought was a monstrous murderer is a hero, really. Yeah. Isn't he? Isn't he then? Isn't he then? So my okay, let me just revisit my biggest issue with this book is that let's do that and then let's be done with it. Yeah, is that the series of clues that Robert Langdon uncovers over the course of this book are not an uncovering of an ancient society. They are not the connected uh, details of works of art that were like. You know, the artist had this secret meaning that we're getting underneath. It is a Dante fanboy who made a super virus who wanted to brag to a lady he was telling she was wrong. And like that, the book also doesn't <laughs> like give you enough evidence to know that in the right moments where you need to. So by the time it's told to you, it doesn't feel like it actually happened. And I just found it very unsatisfying as a, like, why is Robert Langdon in this escape room? Um, why is he going from this to that to this? It isn't... He did too much obfuscation of what was actually happening that I didn't really get why these clues were even in the book. Like, it's I guess it's to brag and to show Sinsky... That Zobrist was capable, and I think that's just a really weak character motivation for for yeah. all of the for the six hundred pages of this book or whatever it is. Yeah, I also like. I was thinking about other like pop lit like beach read stuff that we've read, and I was thinking about Gone Girl and how it has that like twist, but it just like rips off the band aid, and yeah. everything is is changed all in one moment. What? screws up the twist aside from just like the we, the wild <laughs> contrivances and, and leaps in logic that it requires is 
that it does take a full quarter of the book to fully explain all the yeah yeah all the twists and all the like to, to re-explain all the assumptions that you had made throughout the book because there are just so many of them. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And it is like at, at at some point you just kind of put the book down and ask yourself, well. Why, why did I read all those lies? (laughs) Why did I, why did I read all of this book that didn't matter and in retrospect, like wasn't interesting? Yeah. And, and it doesn't do the thing that I thought was the appeal for me. It did not do the thing that I thought was the appeal of Dan Brown books, which is engaging a little bit of conspiracy theory thought, which is like, what if the world has more order to it than it actually does? And what if the forces that are more powerful than me are doing things that oppress me or or keep me in the dark on purpose? Um, and he like gets a little bit of that with some of the skepticism of the WHO or this like creepy Elon Musk tech technocrat guy can like hang out on a boat and do a secret plan. Um, but it doesn't get into the like here is the secret here is some big secret behind this powerful organization that exists in the real world that the reader has a bunch of reference for that is going to compel them to find out what the end is and I, I i came in looking for that and i just found a bunch of stuff instead yeah it's like i thought i was going to get a puppy for my birthday and i got a pizza which is not like <laughs> i mean pizza's fine but it was not a, but like, i did a bad but i did pizza. have to eat the whole pizza and it was too big and i do feel sick now yeah is the problem <laughs> yeah and it's really not a puppy like i really thought and it's not it wasn't gonna be my favorite puppy it's gonna be a damn brown puppy but like at least it was gonna be a puppy <laughs> this metaphor is worthy of a dan brown book hey get to I the think. get to the bottom of it so let's let's make it a Hellboys episode again, right? Oh yeah, no, yeah. Take me back. Take me back. Uh, let's go to the epilogue. Okay. Dante's poem, Langdon was now reminded, was not so much about the misery of hell as it was about the power of the human spirit to endure any challenge, no matter how daunting. Daunting. Well, no, no, it's not. No, the point of Dante's Inferno is not about the. No, it's not ability of the human spirit to endure no it's, it's about like political and social commentary on the city that dante got kicked out of yeah. a lot of it uh-huh it definitely is and about the political power of the church and what happens uh how how angry god might be if his church was doing things he didn't like it, it is not about enduring hell because well, you're stuck even, there forever well you're stuck there and like dante's not really touched by it yep like he's got he's got this guide the whole time and he does i mean he does go through some of the suffering like especially in purgatorio he goes through some of the suffering but it's not the point is never like you you as the reader of that poem are never thinking well they got dante now he's not going to get out of this one that's just not how yeah I that's did... not how it's being explored the, the the like hell and purgatory are not things to be nope nope surmounted so much as they are things to be observed and like relayed back to the reader and i think dante is pretty explicit about that yes i read he he is here to tell you about what he saw to the best of his ability and especially once he gets up into heaven his ability is not very good (laughs) but that is what he is doing i read i read somewhere where uh that brown 
draws is like very into Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and like thinks about that a lot when he's writing these Langdon books. And like, that's just not a, a useful schema for understanding the divine comedy. That's not what's happening in that poem. Dante is not a hero overcoming obstacles. Like, the, the, there's like two bits of conflict in that whole poem. It's like the one time when Virgil wasn't able to walk through those doors and he got mad. And I guess the dirt bike goblins. And then maybe when they put Dante on trial in heaven, if you want a third one. Like there's not a hero vanquishing people. Or yeah, right. It's, uh, yeah. It, it, that to me is... The, is it, this does not capture the spirit of what that poem is up to. And that's okay. I guess that's okay if that's it's what okay. you know it's coming like, in. I don't know. It's, it's you, like Dan, Dan Brown through this entire book is using, is making a lot of Dante references. And, and like, as you pointed out, like the thematic through lines very or the connections between bad. them follow like, like they're pretty tenuous and they fall apart pretty fast but we are we do come back to this poem over and over again we talk about places where dante was we talk about beatrice we talk about um him being exiled from florence and how hard that was for him we talk about venice being the place where he contracted the disease that probably killed him like dante and the divine comedy are sprinkled throughout this but then you take your opportunity to bring it home and to wrap it all up and you say well it's really just about the it's really just about the human spirit oh and God. our ability to endure and it's like no it's no it isn't i wish that zobrist was a was a student of paradiso more because i feel like there is you could Paradiso is in, in Zobris defense. Paradiso is the boring. No, one. I know, but <laughs> I it, if you're if you've written this character who is like we will uh, ascend our meager humanity at some point, and I need to buy us time to do such a thing. Like you think that someone with that attitude might draw more on the part where a guy gets to stare God in the face. And mm-hmm. like is it and hangs out with angels all the time because he learned the truth of Christianity. Like you think that maybe Zobrist would like be would talk about that and try to push humanity in that direction and things like well, that. Man, there's yeah, and there's even stuff in Paradiso about like the 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 capriciousness that that God has. Sometimes. Yeah, which like, could jive with the nature just, thing. Yeah, sometimes he just decides that stuff is the way that it is and and who are you to question it and i think some like megalomaniac mad genius which is what we are led to believe the zobrist is yes. you, you would think that he would identify a little bit more with the like he, he would have more of a god complex yeah. and less of a dante complex it, it really feels like dan brown only read inferno and just stopped <laughs> I get it. I get it. I get it. I mean, the other ones have their moments, but that's the one of the three to do. Yeah, but now I'm one of those. I mean, now I'm one of those Dante hipsters that I'm just like, nah. That maybe well, that's. I'm not, I'm not even. I I am probably even misreading what the point of the <laughs> Divine Comedy is myself. Like I, I don't. I'm not a scholar. I didn't read all yeah, the footnotes sure, sure. that Hollander put down in his edition, but I do think that the discussions we had and what we did read yeah. gave us an okay grounding in what it is yeah. and, and what it's trying to do. And it's not like not here in humanity, just inspiring. It's not an upworthy post. No. Like, it's, <laughs> like, <laughs> All right. I think that's going to take us home. 
What a way to send out Hellboys. What a way to send out Hellboys. You know what it did? We've had a hell of a time. We have. Oh, I can't say anything after that. Mm. You, I mean, you can. Just won't be as good. People know. People I, understand. I was just going to say that this book made me very, uh, made me miss Dante. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have, I do have a love-hate relationship with Dante. I did enjoy reading the Divine Comedy, as we talked about in the last Hellboys episode. Uh, I enjoyed the process of working through it, even if I didn't enjoy every like canto or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked, especially in Paradiso, we talked about our discussions being more yeah. fulfilling than the reading and understanding itself was, which is not always the like. Usually, when we read a book, that's not the case. Not always. Like, no. We have it's like equal. Yeah. Ish. Whereas, <laughs> whereas this book was, I couldn't stop reading it at times, but I. Definitely couldn't start liking it at times. <laughs> it's quite a description of Dan Brown's whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> Truly. I couldn't stop reading it, but I couldn't start liking it. If you have mysteries about the Inferno that we did not solve in this uh, jumbo-sized episode, hit us up at OverduePod at gmail.com. Twitter.com slash overdue pod or Facebook.com slash overdue pod. Um, this was part of our Hellboys Long Reads project. Find out more about our next one, Genie Babies, at patreon.com slash overdue pod. Andrew, what else do people need to know? They need to know about our website. That's overduepodcast.com. Up there, we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read now available through bookshop.org. So you can buy those and read along and also support your local independent bookseller so that's a that's a fun thing uh we have links to apple Podcasts, google play our rss feed we're also available on spotify and stitcher and anywhere you can get podcasts leave us a good review in apple podcasts and we'd really appreciate it that's been a source of uh source of joy in these times it truly has people are looking looking for whatever they can get um not this week but our new theme song is by nick larangis uh that you'll hear on other episodes because this is our, one of the Hellboys episodes. But uh, thanks to Nick for that. Um, coming up next week is Candide by Voltaire, Andrew. Sure when this is. when this hits the main feed, Cold Candide yes, will yeah, be yeah, next. Yeah. Our 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 Hellboys folks are getting this early, but they can look forward to that too. And for the Hellboys folks, look forward to our next long read project, Genie Babies. That's what I said. Where we read the Arabian Nights, and we're going to release the schedule for that soon, right? Yeah, we have it done, so we could actually put that out all in one go. Yeah. Cool. You know what we say every time on Hellboys, Andrew, at the end of every episode, what do we say? <sighs> Dante's poem, Langdon was now reminded, was not so much about the misery of hell as it was about the power of the human spirit to endure any challenge no matter how daunting. That was a headgum podcast.